Chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, they told him, Look, David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 select men from all of Israel and went to find David and his men in the region of the rocks of the mountain goats. He came to the sheepfold of the road where there was a cave, and Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. So now David and his men were sitting in the recesses of the cave, and David's men said to him, This is the day about which Yahweh said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you can do to him whatever seems appropriate to you. So they're hiding in the back of these caves in Engedi, and Saul's army rolls up, like 3,000 strong or three regiments strong, but definitely far greater than 400 men, 600 men. And they roll up, and Saul decides he has to go to the bathroom. He goes in the cave to go to the bathroom. But David's men are in the back of the cave in the dark, and Saul doesn't see this. And David's men immediately interpret this situation through their own theological lens. If Saul's here, more vulnerable than any human could ever be in their life, then God has delivered him into your hands for you to kill him. And David buys into that theology. He buys into that theology, and he agrees with them in their assessment. So David got up and quietly um, quietly went up and cut the edge of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. In the midst of going up, somewhere he decided that theology is wrong. And I don't agree with it. And he decides to cut the corner of the robe off. Now, what's the significance of that? The robe is a symbol of authority. But even more than that, Kingship, yes, but we've seen this happen before. Remember when Samuel turned on him and said, God has ripped the kingdom from you. And Saul, begging for the kingdom to come back, grabbed his robe and ripped the corner off. And Samuel turned on him and said, just as you ripped the corner of my robe, trying to take my authority from you, God will actually rip the kingdom from you. And that moment he says, and give it to another man, a man after God's own heart. Now David is literally cutting the corner of Saul's kingship off. Fulfilling. So in that moment, what Saul, Samuel saw as a witty illustration to what Saul had done literally became prophecy that is fulfilled in a literal, tangible robe kind of a way and a literal also taking the throne one day kind of a way. And so he cuts it. But he's even convicted at that. That says something. I mean, David's going to do some really bad things, but he has a very well-developed conscience. And, and even people with high-developed conscience can still do really bad things because we're called human sinners. So he feels very guilty about this, and he buys into a different theology at this moment because he says this. He said to his men, May Yahweh keep me far away from doing such a thing to my Lord, who is Yahweh's chosen one. By extending my hand against him, after all, he is Yahweh's chosen one. David restrained his men with his words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. Then Saul left the cave and started down the road. This is big. In a human, legal, government, court of a law kind of way, David has every right to kill Saul. The law says that the punishment for murder is death. Saul just killed 85 men, and a witness came back and reported to David. Saul deserves to die. Now, nobody argues that one. 
David is the rightful anointed king over Israel. The job of the king is to execute the will of God, which is the law, and to execute justice among the land, which is eliminating murders. He has every legal right in the law and the courtroom and as king to execute justice on Saul and not be guilty or violate anything in any kind of way. Right? And he could reason that way and probably most everybody in the world would say, that's legit. But what stops David? Because there's something different. This is the one that God picked. And even though technically Saul is not God's anointed in the Holy Spirit kind of a sense anymore, he is God's anointed in that that's the one God chose to be king. And Saul still came because God wants him to be king. And if God didn't want him to be king, he wouldn't be king anymore. And in that sense, David realizes, if I kill this man, then I am contrary to the will of Yahweh. Because I've executed the man that God has picked. The people didn't get that. God picked Samuel to be their leader. And they said, we want a leader like all the other nations. We don't want the one you picked. And they found Saul. Saul and Samuel had no, they had no good reason to get rid of Samuel. He wasn't corrupt. He was doing everything God wanted to. He was delivering them and protecting them. And Yahweh put him in place. Now, you have every legal right to get rid of Saul, and David's not willing to do it because God put him there and God hasn't removed him. This is very powerful because legally he's all in his right, but theologically he's not. There's a law that is higher than even the Mosaic Covenant, and that is the word of God and the will of God. The law is only a part of God's will and law. Because that's what you used to think, like, David should have killed him. David should have killed him. But then when you begin to realize, and what really frames this, and this is important, when you understand the purpose of a book, that frames your interpretations too. Because what is the purpose of a book? The, The true leader submits to the ultimate kingship of Yahweh. Is David doing that? And what David realizes, when does he have the right to kill Saul? When God tells him to. As God told him to do it. No. Now, does that apply to everybody in the nation? No. Because not every, so if you're just some random person in the nation who's killed somebody else, David has every right to execute that man because he has been made judge by God, and that God guy committed a, committed a crime punishable by death under the law. The difference is that random person in the nation wasn't appointed as the head over David. King, Saul is technically David's head, and he's usurping his authority that God put Saul in that place. And even though we think Saul should be removed now, God hasn't chosen to remove Saul because Saul being there is a punishment on the nation. And what David realizes at this moment, remember he made the mistake of going to Philistia for help. And then he went to Moab and he's going all these places. Then he hits total rock bottom and he realizes that God is the only answer. Then he goes here and there and there and there and realizes God saves him, God saves him, God saves him, God delivers him, God delivers him, God delivers him. And he's beginning to learn that God is in control of his life and God will keep his promises and God will make him king in his timing. And what David begins to realize is that true submitting to the will of Yahweh, no matter how just he is in killing Saul, 
It's not God's timing. He's not going to take it through His own efforts and will and power. That's huge. Isn't that exactly what we see with Jesus in the garden or in the wilderness? God said to Jesus, I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the nation. You are the heir of David. And the prophets made it clear that you will sit on the throne that is over the entire earth. And I will seat you on the right hand of me in heaven. And you will come and you will conquer everyone and subjugate all nations and all authorities under you. I have given that to you. But Satan controls us right now. And Jesus can make every legitimate argument for why he would just destroy Satan and take it. And yet he doesn't. He goes to the cross instead. Or he can make every argument that God hasn't honored his promise to give it to him and Satan's going to give it to him, so I will get it from Satan, take it now and do it my way. Because God did promise it to me, so who cares how I get it? That's what God promised me. But instead... Jesus watches us go through human history of 2,000 more years of suffering and the problem of evil and World War I and World War II and the Khmer Rouge and the Hutsus and Tutsis, all this kind of stuff that we deal with. Because it's not God's timing yet to dethrone Satan. Even though God has promised it to Jesus. And you could say Jesus would have every right to take it when he wants it, but that wouldn't be submission to the will of Yahweh. And that's what David realizes. And this is important because at this moment, David really, truly looks like the man of God's own heart. And he is willing to suffer longer, go on the run longer, to wonder what God is doing longer, all because God hasn't given him permission yet. That's big. And that's what it means to be a man or woman after God's own heart. That no matter how much you can justify taking it the way that you want through the means that God has blessed you with and based on the promises of God, you still can't do it because God hasn't done it yet for you. Now you can pray and you can beg God for it and you might even change God's mind to giving it sooner than what he would have gone if it works in his will, but you're not allowed to seize it no matter how justified you are theologically and that he promised it to me or legally in the law. You're not allowed to seize it without God saying, it's yours. And I think things would be a lot different if we would think more like that. All of us, we too often throughout history, the, the, the nation of America, the, our churches, too often we think, but God promises to us and it's within legal bounds. Rather than saying, not my will, but your will be done and your timing. What do you want, God? And that's hard. Because, once again, it's hard to balance that tension between my responsibility and yet praying to God. At the same time, God has given us permission to operate within the frameworks of our governments and our law systems and all that kind of stuff, but ultimate authority belongs to Him. And that's David's theology. And what's powerful about it is this is tempting, and his men are making good arguments, and he's being influenced, and yet in the midst of all his discomfort, his tension, his emotional distraught, his physical life not being safe, the theological, logical arguments of his friends, he goes countercultural in every kind of way. And his theology. 
and it's going to make his life more uncomfortable too. After David got up and went out of the cave, and he called out for Saul, My Lord! See, David still sees Saul as his Lord. And King, when Saul looked behind him, David kneeled down and bowed with his face to the ground. And David said to Saul, Why do you pay attention when men say, David is seeking to do you harm? Today your own eyes you see that Yahweh has delivered you this very day into my hands in this cave. Some told me to kill you. But I had pity on you and said, I will not extend my hand against my, my Lord, for he is the Yahweh's chosen one. Look, my father, and see the edge of your robe in my hand. When I cut off the edge of your robe, I didn't kill you. So realize and understand that I am not planning evil or rebellion. Even though I have not sinned against you and you are waiting in ambush to take my life, may Yahweh judge between the two of us and may Yahweh vindicate me over you. But my hand will not be against you. It's like the old proverb says, from evil people evil proceeds. But my hand will not be against you. you who, ha who has the king of Israel come out after? Who is it that you are pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? May Yahweh be our judge and our arbitrator. May he see the ar and arbitrate my case and deliver me from your hands. You see all that theology there? Now, what's interesting is the use of the word Yod. Yod is the word for hand. And it says earlier we were told that God did not give David into Saul's hand. The people say God has just given Saul into your hand, David. So David comes out and says, God delivered me into my hand, but look in my hand of evidence that I did not use my hand against you. Because I am not going to go against God's hand. And this, he's using this word to emphasize this point. And so he makes the point that I could have killed you. My men all pressured me to. In a way that God did bring you to me, yet I didn't. Then he goes on and says this, because Yahweh is the ultimate judge. And let him arbitrate as judge between you and me, and he will execute judgment on the one that is truly guilty. Not because I've decided you're guilty, but because God has. But I'm confident that I'm going to be vindicated, and you won't. <laughs> Gotta throw that one in there too. But then he goes on and says this, and come on, Saul, who has been feeding you with theology, telling you that I'm conspiring against you and that my hand is against you? Now this is interesting too. All the people around you have been telling you that I'm your enemy and you should kill me because I'm conspiring against you. All the people around me are telling me that you're my enemy and I should kill you. But I didn't listen to the people around me. I listened to God. You're listening to the people around you. And that's big too because the other thing that makes someone a man, someone who is a king like all the other nations is they listen to whatever the pop philosophy and theology and advice is at that moment. Not to the living word of God. And so Saul is not going to God. He's going to the current advice of the wisdom of men. And David is listening to the wisdom of men, but he's rejecting it in the name of Yahweh and his wisdom. And everything is getting filtered through Yahweh for David. And then he says, and on top of that, look at us. You've got an entire army. They're just, we're on the run. We're desperate for our lives. 
It's like you're coming out of flea with a bazooka. This is overkill. Totally unnecessary. When David finished, verse 16, speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is that your voice, my son David? That's the first time he's used the word David in a long time. And even son. Then Saul wept loudly. He said to David, You are more innocent than I am, for you have treated me well, even though I have tried to harm you. You know how like it says when your enemies treat you badly and poorly in the, the Second Testament, and you're to love them anyways and serve them and go the extra mile, and upon this you will heap, heap, you will heap coals upon their head and convict them? There must be something still good in Saul. And he breaks down crying. I, see, here's the thing. I can't imagine what it would be like to be Saul too. I mean, there's somewhat at this moment you begin to sympathize with him. Like, what if he really truly has a mental disorder? What if he really, I mean, he's got to be tormented. You know he's tormented. Nobody lives a life like this and is not tormented. Even Pablo Escobar was, like, tormented. When you read his, like, ratings and stuff like, I mean, that guy was jacked up evil, probably one of the most evil people in human history. And even he was torn. The drug cartels, pleader. There's, there's something there. And David's tapped into it. And what he's tapped into is that David didn't harm him. David spared him. And that broke Saul. Now, we know it's not going to last. But it's not going to last because Saul's going to go back to that toxic environment that he's in. Where everybody is wanting to vie for power. And they're telling Saul whatever he wants to hear so they can gain power. And he can gain power. And David's the easy target. And he's the threat. And when he goes back into that and begins to hear that again, it's going to make him toxic again. And he's going to go after David again. But in this moment, as he's listening to the words of God coming through Saul, David's mouth, it, it, it breaks him. And, and that's powerful. And if, if Saul could stay in that environment... Who knows how he could change, maybe. We don't know. But this says that there's something. There's something. Verse 18. You have explained today how you have treated me well. Yahweh delivered me into your hand, but you did not kill me. Now if a man finds his enemy, does he send him on his way in good shape? May Yahweh repay you for this good this day, for what you have done to me. Now, look, I realize that you will, in fact, be king. This is the first time. Now, Saul's probably figured it out a long time ago. But we don't know when. He definitely didn't have it figured out in chapter 18 and 19. But it, somewhere along this, he's realized God is with David. And God's going to make him king. Which makes his opposing David even more ungodly. This is the first time he's publicly confessed, though, in the, in the Bible. The kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand, Yod. What's really going to be put in your hand, David, is the kingdom. You thought I was in your hand and you chose not to take it, but God will put the kingdom in your hand. Now swear to me in Yahweh's name that you will not kill my descendants after me or destroy my name from the house of my father. David promised Saul this oath. Then Saul went to his house and David and his men wept, uh, went, uh, wept, went up to the stronghold. Saul has asked David to make a covenant with him to not wipe out his house when David becomes king. Which means that David's covenant does not just apply to Jonathan and his sons. It now also applies to all of Saul's other sons, Jonathan's brothers. It includes everybody now. 
And he probably thinks that David will honor this covenant by the fact that David didn't even take Saul's life, who is more deserving and guilty of it than any son is. And David is expressing, he's really truly trusting that God will give him the kingdom. And Saul is confessing that God will give him the kingdom. And so on this basis, Saul takes David as word. And now David has made a covenant with the entire house of Saul to not wipe them out, which means David is completely dependent upon Yahweh securing his throne, which is more evidence that he's a man after God's own heart. This is powerful. Because even if you interpret this in any other kind of context, winning the lottery or whatever, I don't know, there's a lot of ways we would justify, take it, it's yours. The real question we should be asking is, it doesn't matter whether the gift is good or not. It doesn't matter whether it's legal or not. It doesn't matter if we can argue it theologically. It doesn't matter whether God has promised or not. It doesn't matter whether we can see harm or not. It's whether God has given us permission. And that is the ultimate evidence of the Christian life. And that's what is so hard for us, because we like autonomy, even subconscious autonomy. (laughs) But isn't that the point? We, We made that point back in the book of Exodus, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh said, hey, this land on this side is really good. We want it. And Moses says, yeah, it seems reasonable. God delivered this land into our hands. He gave us the ability to defeat Sihon and Og. The land belongs to us now. You can take the land. It sounded innocent. It was good. There was nothing morally wrong with about it. It didn't violate the law in any kind of way, except that he never went to God. And because of that, they didn't live in the land. And they became divided. By the time we got to the book of Judges, they're all enduring in civil wars all the time. And they're completely separated. There's no unity between the tribes. And Jephthah is killing them. And Ephraim is complaining. And all this kind of stuff is happening. And then they're going to completely disappear off the map by the time we get to Kings. Innocent, but Moses didn't seek God. Jonathan, the Gibeonites come to him and say, Hey, make a treaty with us. We're from a foreign nation. Seems reasonable. Makes sense. Their need, their thirsty, didn't consult God, causing a lot of problems. Now, because Gibeah ends up becoming half pagan and half Israelite, they end up marrying with the Benjamites, and then they go out and they do the Sodom and Gomorrah thing in the book of Judges, and then they all back up Gibeah, and then Saul comes from that, and now Saul's ruining the land, all this kind of stuff. All these things seem very innocent, very legal, very amoral, But because they don't talk to God, they don't see that long-term, 100,000-year ramification on the nation. And a lot of times what we do, we feel like it's so small. But it ripples. And only God can see what we cannot see. And we need to be constantly seeking God in almost every decision we're making and just asking, is this of you? Is this of you? And that's the the point the narrator is trying to make here. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. David is not perfect. David hasn't been getting it right in a lot of ways. There's other things he's doing wrong. And he's going to keep doing things wrong. And they're actually going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. But deep down inside, David is still asking, but what does God want? What does God want? What does God want? This is going to bring a a change for David. Because at this point, Saul is going to honor his word. He's going to back off David. And after... We don't know exactly how many years have gone by, but at least a handful. David's going to be at rest for the first time ever 
from Saul's pursuit. Now, he still doesn't have a home of his own. He, he's still kind of on the run, but he's not going to be constantly like looking over his shoulder every second anymore. This is going to bring him to a time period of rest. 